So let's hear the Word of God. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. These passages never get old, do they? We read of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, uh, God with us. We remember that God had sent His own Son into the world. The greatest mystery, the greatest wonder of the universe is that God would become a man. And that He, not laying aside His divinity, but laying aside the glory that was attached to that, would lay that aside, would humble Himself would condescend to come among us and would come on a mission to save and would take upon himself human flesh, would condescend to that extent and not only to become a man, but to become, as it were, under man, to undermine man, to come up underneath him in order to save him. For he would become a servant and he would become obedient and obedient even unto death, the death of a cross. And God has highly exalted him for that purpose. So these words that we read today, uh, though they are familiar to us, I think if we're believers, they never get old because they tell us of the story of our Jesus who came to save us from our sins. It was a little strange to me, I have to admit, that as Nick and I talked about uh, this missions conference and we talked about when it was going to happen and what were the dates and so forth, and we talked and sort of threw around several dates and finally came to uh, December the 18th. And I thought, that's a little bit strange for a missions conference uh, to begin to be in the Christmas season. Normally we... We have our missions conferences in the spring, and sometimes you'll have them in the fall. Uh, But as I thought about it more, and as I prayed about what to bring uh, to you today, uh, I really thought it's perfect. It's perfect. Because our Lord, in sending His Son into the world, uh, sent Him in to be a missionary. Uh, the The very missionary cause is really not ours. It is Jesus Christ's cause. It is his mission to come into the world to save. And so I think our topic uh, for this week as we think about Christmas, as we get closer to celebrating the birth of Jesus, it's not wrong for us. In fact, it is right for us to take our minds to the nations because that's what Jesus has on his mind. 
He has on his mind the purpose to save and to send his gospel into the uttermost parts of the earth. And so it's, uh, it's absolutely right for us as we consider Christmas and Christ coming into the world that our minds should go uh, and to be stirred for that great cause that Jesus Christ himself has come into the world. And I think we see that in this passage. Uh, there's much to say about it. Uh, Matthew, of course, is the gospel of the king, a gospel of the kingdom of God. It begins with a, de- a genealogy, uh, a sort of tracing of the line of kings of Israel. Jesus right in that line as the adoptive son of Joseph. And the scriptures are very careful to speak of Joseph in that way. Uh, but Jesus legally in the line Uh, of Joseph and from David as the king. So uh, this is the birth of a king. But of course, as we read, it's a most unusual king for this king had come on a very uh, uh, specific mission. And that was a mission to save. And we see that in the names that that were given to him. His given name, so to speak, that the angel told Joseph to give to him, and also this other name that had come to us as a fulfillment uh, from the book of Isaiah. It was a name that Jesus did not go by in his life, but it was a name that spoke of who he was. And so I want to think about those two aspects, those two names uh, today, and what they tell us about Jesus, and then what they also tell us, what they imply throughout the Gospel of Matthew about us and about our calling as Christian people. And so I want to speak a little bit today about the mission of our Lord, and we see that in His name. It says in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. That's the mission. And the name Jesus is attached to the mission that Jesus Christ had and still has uh, in the world. But then secondly, we get this other name, this other name that he is called, and uh, in a fulfillment of the prophecy, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I think that speaks of the, what we might say, the equipment uh, for the task, the equipment for the mission is the fact that Jesus is not simply a man, but he is God with us, with all the authority, all of the power, all of the attributes, we might say, of God himself uh, equipped and given into this particular task to save. So that's where I would like for us to go today. I want to speak a little bit about this mission and what it means, this mission to save. And then secondly, about... Uh, a couple of attributes that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might say the equipment. You know, kids, sometimes you think, well, what is God like? What, what is he like? How can I know him? What's, what is God like? Well, Jesus, coming in the flesh, is manifesting to us. He's showing to us. He's demonstrating to us what God is like. And so these are God-like qualities that Jesus is going to exemplify in this saving mission. And by the way, those attributes, those qualities, uh, those powers are on display today. They are still effective. And one of the things that we 
uh, think about as we think about mission is that God is still with us uh, in the Great Commission that we'll look, we'll look at a little bit later on. Uh, it's uh, striking, isn't it, that at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he uses those words, those same words, really, and to say, and lo, I am with you. I am with you all the days until the end of the age. Amen. So this saving purpose, uh, folks, is going on today. Jesus is doing it. We're called to do it. We're stirred up to do it. But he's doing it. It's his work. It's his mission. And we have a gracious, uh, glorious privilege to participate in that in our meager, uh, weak ways. Uh, and, but it is a glorious privilege that we have. So I want to speak on the mission. I want to speak on this uh, equipping attributes, we might say, the manifestation of God in the flesh and how that operates. And then I want to sort of apply that to us. Uh, this morning in the Great Command, the Great Commission that comes to us at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Okay, so those three things, the mission and then the, the manifestation of who God is throughout Jesus' ministry, and then apply that to us. What of us? Let's look at this commission and what God calls us to uh, himself. You'll notice that the wording here in verse 21 is very precise. It's very precise. He says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, I used to be an English teacher, so I'm very, uh, I'm attracted to grammar and prepositions and all that. That may, that may strike you as odd. But, but when I look at that passage, I'm struck by the fact that he will save his people from their sins. There's a sense not so much will save them from an aspect of their sins. In other words, give them a sort of fire insurance for the day when they will face God. But no, Jesus is in the, his mission is to separate his people from their sins. So that on the day when you and I stand before the Lord in glory, we will not be standing there with our sins. They will be separated from us forever. And the work of Jesus Christ in mission is to save his people from their sins, absolutely, uh, on the day when we stand in glory. Now, we know that all of us today, if you're a Christian today, you're still a sinner. That's still your identity, isn't it? Martin Luther said we are simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously just and righteous and sinners. And that's our, that's our identity. That's an aspect of our identity now. We are sinners in Christ. But folks, there's a day coming when you and I will stand in glory and we will not have that identity anymore. It will be wiped away completely. And when we stand before him, we will stand before him absolutely spotless. And the work of Jesus Christ is a work of saving his people from their sins. And it's a work that begins at conversion, and it goes on throughout the whole of life. We might think of it this way. Uh, I don't normally use uh, 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 acronyms, but, uh, uh, but letters, but think of it this way. Jesus Christ has come to save us from the penalty of our sins. 
from the guilt and the condemnation that, that sin brings. If you're not a Christian today, I suspect that at least there has been some time in your life when you have confronted the fact, your own conscience, and your conscience has said, that was wrong. What you did, what you said, that was wrong. And maybe you've had an opportunity, as I did for many years, of pushing that sense away. Covering up that, uh, that sense of guilt and, and uh, the condemnation that, that comes with that. But you know what? We're created in God's image. We have, uh, we've been given uh, something of the image of God. And we can never in this life escape from the reality of sin against God. We just can't. It's going to be a part of us for all of our days of standing before God and breaking his law and standing as a guilty sinner before him. So whether you believe the Bible or not, believe your own conscience because that's true. That's true. God has a law. He's determined it. He's created us in that way. We cannot escape. But Jesus Christ has come to take away the penalty of our sins. He's come to take that guilt and that condemnation and all of that away And he did that by the work on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him, Christ, he made him who knew no sin, was not a sinner, never felt those pangs of guilt and conscience and condemnation that all of us have at some times felt. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the absolute Uh, No guilt, no condemnation. The covering, absolutely white, absolutely righteous covering of God. And we put that on when we believe on Him. That's why Luther could say, simultaneously just and a sinner. Standing before God, now, now, even today, standing before God, absolutely righteous. Righteous, declaring us in that way because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. He's done away with the penalty. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior, as we sang. But He's not only done that, for in His saving work, He's not only dealt with the penalty of our sins, but He's done something inside of us. He's he's brought the Holy Spirit. He's purchased the Holy Spirit for us that the Holy Spirit might work in us to deal with not only the penalty of our sin, but the power of sin. Sin's sway, sin's uh, omnipotence in a real sense. I was talking to a man uh, this week, and uh, in his life has been a life where sin has got into the ring with him as a, as a wrestler and has been tossing him around in the ring for all of his life. Here and there, the omnipotent power of sin. It had no, no response to it, no power within himself to keep from sinning. That's what he did. That's who he was. And Jesus Christ has come into the world to save us not only from the penalty, but from the power of sin, to to release, as it were, sin's grip upon the life, the great power there. Ephesians chapter 2, you remember, talks about how you were dead in sin and in the uh, the sinful pattern 
of your life, following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, under the sway and the captivity of sin. And Jesus Christ has come to deliver us from that power and to give us his own spirit. We love the hymns we sing. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the captives free. That's what he does. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love the hymn. It starts like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a flickering ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We didn't do that, folks. That was the grace of God in Jesus Christ and sending his spirit into the world, giving us light and life and releasing us, as it were, from the grip and the power of sin. Now, we're still sinners, aren't we? And sin still has that uh, almost a sort of habitual kind of sway, but it does not have power. If you're in Jesus Christ, the greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? The power of sin has been dealt with uh, in our coming to Jesus Christ and our faith in him. And of course, ultimately, ultimately that salvation is not just for this life, but he's saving us for what is to come on that day when we will stand before him. And I love the, uh, the benediction in uh, the book of Jude uh, that we often read. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So you see, that's what's ahead for us. The Lord has released us from the power of sin, but we still struggle, don't we? We fight against it. We're in the battle, so to speak. I was talking to someone other, the other day that, uh, uh, where, I was, where I was talking about, you know, when they, uh, I said to them that the health and wealth gospel is a false gospel and that when the Lord saves you, he's, uh, you're not going to be free from pain and affliction. And sorrow is going to come into your life. And she said, yeah, I feel like when I became a Christian, that's when my problems began. There's some truth to that, isn't it? Where the Lord brings us into situations and we're, we're believing in him. And yet it's tough, it's difficult. And he's brought us through certain things. But those trials, even those difficulties, are in order that we might be more and more conformed to his image. That's the great plan and purpose of God to save so that salvation is, it's absolute, isn't it? He's come to save his people from their sins. That's Jesus Christ's mission. That's why he came. He came to save. So when we think about missions, when we think about taking the gospel to the nations, we're not inventing something new. We're, we're not coming up with a plan that was not already in play. Jesus Christ came the Father sent him into the world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, his mission was a saving mission, and he's still doing it today. 
You know, we prayed before the service. We pray for different churches. Becky and I prayed this morning for our church, for Heritage Church and other churches. And what we know that's going to happen today, it may not happen here, it may not happen in Heritage Church, but it's going to happen somewhere, is that Jesus Christ is going to save today. He's going to save today. He's going to bring sinners out of that, uh, the power and the grip of sin, and he's going to bring them to himself. That's the missionary purpose, you see. That's his missionary activity, is to save. But an encouraging thing is what the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, because he is God, uh, has as, uh, we might say, equipment to carry out that purpose, to carry out that mission. And that is the fact that he is God. He is God. He is God with us to save. God with us to save. I don't know about you, but that's an encouragement whenever you go to a neighbor or friend or with us, we go next door to the Good News Club and we start talking to the gospel of these uh, kids, is we say God is with us to save. That's his purpose. That's why he's come. And so whatever we do, whatever kind of program, we go to an abortion clinic or we go here or there or the other place, we can say in all truthfulness, God is with us and he's with us to save. He's with us to save. A couple of things about that uh, God with us that I want to point out. One of the things uh, that comes up again and again and again is the Lord Jesus Christ's authority. His power that was, in some sense, when he was on the earth, was partly veiled. But you kind of see it coming out in these uh, flashes from time to time to let us know that God is with us in Jesus Christ. One of the first places, and I'm not going to point out them all, but if you've got your Bibles, you can look at the end of Matthew 7, uh, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said all those words and the people were just, uh, had their mouths open at what he was saying. And at the end of Matthew 7, verse 28, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. That's a very strong word in the Greek. By the way, it means astonished. They were actually astonished. They were, mouths were open. They were dumbfounded. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes, not as the ones who had been educated in the schools and so forth, and they had all the knowledge, and they could get all their ducks in a row, and everything was just precise. No, Jesus came preaching and teaching with authority, and it was the authority of God. It's the authority. Of, it is God speaking. You know what, folks? When we open this word, we open this book, God has told us in this book that this book, this word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, there's power in a two-edged sword, isn't it? That's the power of Islam, for example, is the power of the sword. It's the power of human authority, human power. But God says that this word and the words that Jesus spoke, this word that we read is more powerful than that two-edged sword because it is the authority of who? God himself. God who has spoken the world into being now speaks through his word. And when Jesus spoke, the people were struck for he spoke to them as one who had 
authority. Authority. And we see it again in chapter 8, for example, when he goes to Capernaum. You remember that story uh, of the uh, centurion who sent a man to him and said, my, my servant is uh, near to death. And so, Master, you don't need to come, but just speak the word. Just say the word. And Jesus was astounded at that, was really taken aback. Never have I seen such faith in Israel. And, and remember what the centurion said. He said, Lord, verse 8, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And it astounded Jesus. What faith? Faith in the Word of God. The Word of God. Because it had what? It had authority. And there was power with that Word. And Jesus spoke, and the man was healed. Such authority. We see it again in that same chapter, in verse, uh, beginning at verse 23, when he's with the disciples in the boat. And you remember the storms came up, and and uh, threatened to swamp the boat. And the disciples were very afraid. And Jesus rebuked them for their faith. Oh, you of little faith. And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Jesus was a man. He had taken upon himself human flesh, and everybody that knew Jesus, everybody that had any kind of connection with Jesus, would never have thought that he wasn't a man, because he was everything that a man was. But when the disciples saw him with authority, not only to heal, but here to calm the winds, raging uh, waves, speak the word absolute calm with an authority over nature, they were dumbfounded. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? The authority. We could see it, it kind of uh, shining out, as it were, with Jesus. He didn't do this sort of thing every day. But it shined out from time to time. As we'll see a little bit later on, the Bible says that now all authority has been given to him. All authority in heaven and earth. But there's something else that goes along (coughs) with Jesus' authority and his power. This God with us. Because this God with us is not only powerful, he not only has authority, and he does, and he commands, and we must obey, but this God with us has compassion. There is a condescension in the Godhead, the mystery of the Godhead, that God has a compassion for fallen creatures, for fallen men and women, He looks out upon it, and it grieves him to see a fallen race. 
We see something of that, I think, in Jesus' own attitude. And this is to be uh, our attitude as well, our mindset as we follow our Savior. But look at chapter 9, for example, in verse 35. I'm not going to exegete this passage, but I just want to read it to you and point out one or two things. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Not just some, not just the, the ones who gave some evidence of being a believer, but all of them, all that came to him, every disease, every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, the crowds, nameless faces out there, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What's Christ's attitude? What did he what was his uh, approach, so to speak, when he looked to the crowds? And let's think of ourselves. What, what, what's our attitude when we look to the crowds, so to speak? Do we see, well, sinners. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But how do we look at them? Jesus looked at them as God does. Because he's God manifest in the flesh. And when he looks on them... He had compassion for them. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Is that the way we look at sinners? I think we have a tendency sometimes to sort of categorize sinners. We say, well, that sinner is not so bad. This one over here, boy, they're really bad. Uh, This one over here has this sort of identity. This one over here has a different kind of identity. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's sexual preference, which is the word of the day. Maybe it's color. Maybe it's race. Maybe it's social standing. We fallen human beings tend to classify people in all these different categories, don't we? The Bible classifies them as what? Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They are fallen sinners. Yes, they are rebels. That's where we were. They are rebels against God. They shake their fist against God. But folks, they're sinners. They're sinners. And they're sinners in need of a Savior. And when Jesus looked out upon the crowds, that's how he saw them. Because he says to the disciples then, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He saw sinners as a harvest field. He saw them as those needing to come to Christ, those in need of the gospel, those in need of our going to them, those in need of our engaging with them in order that they might be saved. That's how Jesus looked at them. He didn't categorize them. He didn't say, well, these are probably more likely to believe than these. No, he saw them all as a jangled mix of crowd that were harassed and helpless and in great need of a Savior. And so he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out his own people.
into that harvest field to bring them to himself by the grace of God. Of course, we know that that's true, by the grace of God. You know, at the time of the Reformation, the great uh, ingathering or the great recovery of the doctrines of grace that we, that we love so well, and we love the truth of the Word of God and, the, and uh, the, the doctrines and the teachings that go along with that. But the Reformation was not what you might call a great missionary age. It was an age of recovery, but it was not an age of sending. That actually came later. Uh, about a hundred years later, actually, when the great missionary movement came. We have to be very careful as Reformed people, it seems to me, that we have our doctrinal ducks in a row and we understand the, the grace of God in the gospel and we, we understand what the gospel means and we understand how the Word of God is sufficient for all things. But we need to get the mindset that Jesus Christ Himself had. It wasn't to stay... In uh, Israel, it wasn't just to enjoy the fruits of Christianity and being saved, but it was this mindset to save, this mindset even to go and to be used of the Lord in that way, the harvest, you see. That was the mindset of our Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the world as a field and as a harvest field to be harvested for himself. For himself. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. Isn't that his gospel call to us? That we heard, perhaps as Christians? What did he say to us? He said, come to me. Come to me. And that's what the missionary call is. Is to go and to plead with sinners. Come to him. Come to him. He receives sinners. He receives them to himself. What an amazing God man with us, that Jesus Christ is. The compassion of our Lord, the condescending love of our Lord. I quoted a while ago, Philippians chapter 2. That's condescension, isn't it? He who was in the form of God. That just, that means he was God. That's what it means. He was in that category of God. He who was in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to for all your worth. He did not have to be brought kicking and screaming into this earth. He laid aside. He emptied himself, as the scriptures say, of, of, the, of those attachments of glory to come among us. What condescending love. When we think of the incarnation and we think of Christmas, what, what ought to well up in our, in our hearts and in our minds is the great condescension of God to become a man for our sakes. He who was rich, he who was rich for your sakes became poor, that you in his poverty might become rich. That's the story of Christmas, isn't it? But it's also the story of the missionary call. It's, it's his mission. That's why he came. He came to save. Well then, what, what of us? What is, uh, what, what is left then uh, for us? Well, the Lord didn't leave us uh, uh, with our imaginations, did he? Because when he left, or just before he left, he gave that what is known, and I'm sure you've heard many sermons on it before, he gave that great commission. He didn't actually call it a commission. It was a command. 
It was a command. And that command uh, came to the disciples, and I believe, we could argue about this if you want, but I, I believe that not only were the 11 there, they are mentioned, but I believe that this was the occasion that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, where 500 met at the mountain. And Jesus gave this commission, not simply to the 11, but to all of the other disciples who were there. Now, that's my own opinion from looking at other things. You don't have to believe that if you, if you want to. But we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that, that at one point there were 500 disciples. And I suspect that if Jesus didn't on this occasion speak to them, I suspect he spoke to them in much the same way. So this commission was not simply for the 11. This commission is a commission that goes ringing down through the years to the church of Jesus Christ. And let's put it a little bit more specifically. It comes to every local assembly that is gathered together in Jesus' name. It comes to us. So it comes to me as pastor of Heritage Church. It comes to all of our people. It comes to you. Uh, here uh, at uh, Redeemer Baptist Church and to Nick as as the pastor. It comes to all of us, Jesus' commission. A couple of things I want to say about that is that that Jesus is saying this just before he ascends into heaven. And so what he's saying here has application as the ascended Lord. Okay, not as, the, uh, <clears throat> not as the one who set aside his glory and took upon himself human flesh. No, no, this is after the resurrection uh, and the ascension into glory. Even though the words were spoken before he actually ascended, that's implied is that these are the words coming from the risen and ascended Christ. Because he says that, doesn't it? Jesus came and said to them, All authority, all authority, not simply, you know, sparks of authority that that, uh, we saw in Jesus' life, but now, as a resurrected king, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, authority for what? Well, what was his mission? It was to save. It was to be the Savior, to save His people from their sins. That's, that's the authority. That's the power. It's the power to save. Christ's lordship now in heaven is to rule over all things, heaven and earth and all authority. But we must remember that the reason that He came at the beginning, at the first, was to save. This is a saving authority. That ought to really encourage us if we... Uh, go next door to the person down the street or as we talk to the checkout lady at the Kroger or whoever it is that we're talking to, however we're thinking about missionary endeavor in Nigeria or France or wherever, that this is what Jesus came to do. He came to save. And all authority now has been given to him. And it's authority to save. I guess what I want to impress upon you is that we have this glorious privilege of participating in the work of Jesus Christ. It's not like he's sitting up there in heaven and he says, now you go do it. 
That's not it at all. This is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. You remember, he, he was the one who sent the Spirit uh, on the day of Pentecost. The ascended Lord given the Spirit by the Father to send. And he sent that Spirit into the world. And he's still doing that today. He's saving. We get to participate. We get to have a role. We get to have a, a part in this glorious pageantry, this glorious play, we might say, that Jesus Christ is doing, and we get to participate. But there's also a command. He says, in something of imitation of me, what he says to us is, go. Now, why did I say in imitation of me? Well, what did Jesus Christ do? We sing the hymn at Christmas. Uh, Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. He left his father's throne to come for me. That's going. That's going. That's leaving comfort, we might say, the glory of being God. You know, God didn't send Christ into the world to save because God was lonely. He was absolutely fulfilled. He was absolutely sufficient. There was no need of us at all. It was a great condescending love that sent him. But he went. You see, he went. And Jesus now commands, you go. You go. Now, I'm not saying you're going to go to Africa, or uh, some of you have, and that's wonderful. Or, uh, but uh, if we're Christians, we're in the mindset of going, of going. Whether it's going next door, whether it's going down the street, uh, whether it's going to a friend in need, or it, it, that's the Christian life. It's going. It's not sitting. It's going. And Jesus is saying, participate with me. Because I went. And all of the days that he was on the earth in Israel, we find him doing what? We find him going. <laughs> we find him going from place to place. And uh, he never left Israel. It's amazing. But he, he traversed a lot of territory in Israel, didn't he? Place to place, city to city. In fact, the disciples, things would be going on that seemed to be going pretty good. And they'd... And uh, Jesus said, I, I can't stay here. I've got to go to the next place. He was going. That was, his, that was the mindset. And so he says to us, not some unusual command, but he says to us, like me, go. Go. And as you go, he says, make disciples. Make disciples. That's our, the, the mindset. Nick uh, kind of alluded to this in the, in the whole church planting effort is the fact that we're not simply you know, preaching the gospel with a sort of uh, uh, scattergun uh, approach. But the desire is that people will be converted and brought into churches where they're under uh, the teaching role of a pastor or pastors, and they're going to grow. They're going to become disciples. And that they themselves will catch what Jesus had come to do to save, that they themselves will go to the next place or wherever it is. That's the whole mindset. Uh, you think of it this way. There are, two, there are two bodies of water in Israel 
One of them was the Sea of Galilee in the north, and it flows down to the south through the uh, Jordan River and then comes into the second body, which is called the Dead Sea. And it's called the Dead Sea because there's not an outlet. It doesn't go anywhere after that. And it's uh, not a very pleasant place from what I gather. The Sea of Galilee is a little different because the water comes into the Sea of Galilee and then it goes out through the Jordan into the Dead Sea. We are to be Christians who are kind of like the Sea of Galilee. What comes in sort of goes out. Not the Dead Sea where something comes in, the gospel comes to us, and it just sits there. That's not healthy Christianity. Uh, I've got to move on, but i tell you a little story uh, as I look at our congregation right now, I see the folks that are really doing well. They are those who have a heart for the gospel. When we started the uh, Good News Club four years ago, we had some kids who were volunteers, that's homeschool kids, you know, who would go over with us, a few teenagers, young teenagers, and, uh, and they would work. You know what happened to them? They began to do the work. They themselves were not Christians, but they began to do the work and reading the Bible and the lessons and so forth. And they were enjoying the uh, being servants. And, and the Lord did a work in their lives. I baptized six of those young people in the spring that had actually worked in that good news club in the fall. I'm not saying that's the recipe for salvation, but... But it, it does show us that they're out there, they're seeing what's going on, they're seeing a need, and, uh, and, and the Lord is with them. And that, uh, that evangelistic zeal has really not slowed down among our young people. I'm praying that some of our older folks will look at them and go, hey, I need to catch up with these kids, because they're really, they're really on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the Sea of Galilee. They're like the Sea of Galilee. What's flowing into them is going out from them, you see. And that's, that's uh, God's way. And, uh, of course, the, uh, you know the rest of it. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. You see, that's the church, you know. That's the, the ministry of the church. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Till the end of the age. But notice what he says here. And the ESV, I think could be actually a little bit better here. He says, I am with you always. Quite literally, that phrase is all the days. I'm with you all the days. Think about it this way. If you are, uh, you're saying, you know, I really want to be used to the Lord. I want to be a, an evangelist. Uh, I want to be part of the proclamation of the gospel. I want to be a servant. I want to be used uh, and, the, and the Lord begins to do that, and you, you begin to do that, quite often what you're going to run into is some discouragement. You're going to run into uh, uh, the, your own Ethans, you know, who are very difficult uh, to uh, work with. You're going to be discouragement. And Jesus Christ has said, I am with you, not simply to the end of the age, that's great, but I am with you all the days. That means every single day. Every day when you and I get up in the morning and we say, Lord, I want to be faithful to you today. I want to obey you today. 
I want to be a servant today. I want to look out upon my world and see it the way that you see it, with great need. And I'd like to be used by you today. All the days. I'm with you, he says, all the days. With authority, with power, and with great compassion. Great condescending love, you see. And we can, uh, we can catch that. We can sort of get on the caboose, so to speak, with the Lord, the great engine of salvation uh, at the helm. And may God give us grace uh, to, to do that and to be used of the Lord uh, in ways that are pleasing to Him and bring glory to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we pray that, uh, Lord, the, the Lord Jesus Christ would receive the glory that's due to Him that all the nations, as are predicted, prophesied in the, Old Test, uh, in the Old Testament, would come bowing before him. Pray, Lord, that you would enable us, as you told your disciples, to lift up our eyes, to see the fields as they are white for harvest. May we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, perhaps even me or you, uh, those that you have placed your hand upon. And Lord, would you give us all that um, uh, a zeal uh, to have something of the Savior's heart. And as we look out upon a world that is mired in sin, uh, that they might be saved and know the joy of being with Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.